morning, everyone. You may be seated. It's good to see everyone today. I have chosen to preach without a microphone today. I'm going to use my outdoor voice. So be aware I spit a lot. Just kidding, just kidding, just kidding. Turn your Bibles, if you would, please, this morning to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Second Corinthians chapter 11. I'll be reading uh, from verse 1 to 4. 1 through 4. Which reads, Would to God you could bear with me a little in my folly, and indeed bear with me, for I am jealous over you with godly jealousy. For I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he that cometh preaching another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if ye receive another spirit, which ye have not received, or another gospel, which ye have not accepted, ye might well bear with him. Let us pray. God, we come before the throne of grace this morning. We come into the holy of holies, to the blessed and holy righteous blood of Christ our Lord. Lord, we thank you for cleansing us of our sin, for giving us eyes to see and ears to hear. And Lord, we ask this morning that you'd open our hearts to receive what it is that you would have to say to us this morning, Lord, that you'd strengthen your church. For the word of God says from Christ himself, he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Lord, this is your prevailing church. And Lord, we call upon your name today that you'd give us strength, that you'd enable us with your power, Lord, to be that light in such a dark age that we live in. A dark age in which the light of Christ is demanded, even in our homes, in our marriages, in our personal lives, at our workplaces, Lord. Wherever we go, we need to be that bright and burning light. So, Lord, we commit this day, we commit this time, and we commit this message into your hands. In Jesus' name. Amen. But I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. The title of this message this morning is Rebellion Against Simplicity. Rebellion Against Simplicity. And the simplicity that I'll be discussing is what I believe Paul was addressing to the church of Corinth about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul's end was to instill confidence in the church with his apostleship. We know that 2 Corinthians really deals with that reality of Paul having to uh, reaffirm his apostleship 
and come against all the false teachers that came in and were trying to somehow disgrace and shame him for who he for who he was. And he had to confront that, but he confronted that um, for the very purpose of gaining the trust of the congregation so that they wouldn't wander away from the simplicity that's in the gospel. And that is really what we'll be dealing with today. The ultimate reason uh, was so that the church would listen to and believe the truth that was presented in the gospel. And that certainly was the simplicity that is in Christ. It wasn't a crazy, it wasn't a confusing uh, religious message about an unknown God, but a simple message of how a sovereign God has dealt with sinful men. But if you're at all familiar with the total depravity of man, you know that the sinful nature of man recoils against simplicity. It cannot accept anything that it cannot work for, boast about, or show off. The sinful heart of man will not share worship with any other. We must remember that Christ himself says that he will not share his glory with another. It's either all of Christ or nothing at all. And this is why you have an estimated today of, of 10,000 religions worldwide. It's interesting because when you see people straying from the simplicity of the gospel that's in Christ, you get man trying to create another way to make himself right with God. And we see this everywhere. Paul said, but I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted. See, rebellion against the simplicity began in the garden. As we remember in the garden, did God really say that? Did God really mean that? You see, it wasn't enough for God just to say, obey and you will live. There is always a controversy with man against the simplicity of God's command, the simplicity of what's in Christ. Man by nature rebels against simplicity. We rebel against simplicity. Sometimes the gospel just isn't enough. And this is where you see a lot of the cults and false religions arise, not just the 10,000 religions around the world, but even in different denominations, uh, they have different views on different things of what it truly means to be saved or what you have to do to be saved. And they have all these different ideas about the gospel because, in essence, they can't be satisfied with the simplicity that's in the gospel. And this is what Paul was warning them. This is the fear that Paul had had, that, that, that had for, for the body of Christ, that they would stray away from this simplicity, that they wouldn't trust in Christ, they wouldn't trust in the biblical gospel. Human nature rebels against simplicity. The free grace of God is repulsive to the religious man. We have to understand that, that right from the beginning when man fell, when he sinned against God and sin came into the world and the whole world became guilty before God, man, in essence, is repulsed by the simplicity of salvation. You tell a man that he can be made right with God through faith in Jesus Christ, as many of you know, that most men, what? Believe that they are good. 
that they don't need Christ. How dare you tell me that I have to kneel and bow to another man? Because in essence, the same curse that came upon Adam, what did Adam do as soon as sin came into the world? He didn't bow down and worship Christ. He began to sow. He tried to regain through his own work, try to reestablish the salvation that he had lost. He tried to regain his restoration through his work, which was cursed. And the only way man can be made right with God is through Jesus Christ. But unfortunately, man is sinful. And without Christ, he will continue to look for other means to be made right with God. Especially when he thinks he can craft something better. How offensive to tell a person that he is no good, that he is ruined, that he is a filthy sinner in the eyes of a holy God. And his only hope in being made right with God and entering into the Holy of Holies comes through Jesus Christ alone. And this is why we have John 14, 6, where Christ himself says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, no man comes to God except through me. Which really shows the intolerance of Christ towards all the false religions around the world that says there's many ways to God. When Christ himself says there isn't many ways, there's only one way, and that is me. Amen. And you know the world is repulsed against that reality. Go out into the world, into an agitated world, and tell them. Go into much of the church today and tell them that it's Christ alone. It's not that your church attendance doesn't save you. It's not how much you give. It's not how wealthy you are. It's through the saving power of Christ alone. Paul really definitely drilled this home in Galatians 1.6. When he, when he told the church in Galatia, he says, I marvel. In other words, I am devastated that you are turning away so soon, so quickly from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel, any other gospel to you than what I have preached to you. Let him be accursed. Let him be damned. And this is strong language. And he goes on to say in verse 9, as we have said before, so now I'll say it again just so you get the point. If anyone preaches another gospel to you than what I have received, let him be accursed. And this is really the reality of what Paul is trying to preserve the Corinthian church. He said, man, if you don't trust me as an apostle, you're certainly not going to trust the message that I'm preaching. And the message that I'm preaching is the only message that's going to save your soul from hell. And that's the truth. But it's not only this, the, the, the message is going to save you from hell. It's the redemptive message that's going to carry you through life. It's the power of the gospel that energizes marriages. That energizes an individual to live a godly and holy life to re represent Christ and truth to a lost and apostate world around us. It's the power of the gospel that saves marriages. It's the power of the gospel that illuminates children to the reality of life in a very dark world. The power of the gospel not only saves us, but it's what we live by. And if you get a false gospel, guess what's going to happen? You're going to live with a false reality. If you don't have the true Christ, you're going to have something else with detrimental results. When Christ, before he sent his apostles out into the world, he says, 
Who do they say that I am? Who does the world say that I am? They say, well, they, they say you're Elijah or you know Jeremiah or John the Baptist. But he says, who do you say that I am? And then Peter says, you're the Christ. Because it was the most important thing that these men could know beyond anything else that they had the right gospel. They had the right Christ. And this is the same thing that Paul is dealing with now. He's saying it's extremely important that you don't stray away from the simplicity that's in Christ. Don't have to throw the law onto it. You don't have to attach anything onto it. You don't have to make it better. It's the power of the gospel that saves life. It is the wisdom of God. The gospel is a simple gospel, yes, but it is not a cheap gospel. It's not an easy gospel. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer said in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, quoting from his book, he said, such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it's a grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs man his life. And it is grace because it gives man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. And grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. You were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. That is cheap grace. The simplicity of Christ is not easy believism either. It's not just saying some little prayer or agreeing to some set of principles, then you are declared a Christian. Every Christian circle has their own way of confirming someone's salvation. The charismatic circles say you must have the evidence by speaking in tongues to be saved. The free will Baptists say you choose when you want to be saved, which is called decisional salvation. The fundamentalists say cut your hair, don't smoke, don't drink. Women better wear dresses only or else. The Sabbatarians say you better keep the Sabbath or else. The messianic circles say to keep the feast, the holy days, and wear your tassels. The reform groups, which I'm a part of, which I am, Love straining gnats, chasing down heretics, picking on Arminians, and playing show and tell with all of their polished doctrines. Isn't that true? Agree with them or you're out, right? But John, in John 5.39, Christ made a very, very good point. He says, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness of me, yet... Yet, he says, you refuse to come to me that you may live. The simplicity of Christ. You search and you search and you search, but you won't come to me. They testified me, but you won't come to me that you may live. Don't you understand? We don't come to a set of principles to be saved. We don't follow a religious order or ceremonies or rituals to be made right with God. We come to a person the person of Jesus Christ to be converted. 
Yes, we love great theology. Theology and doctrine defines the Christ that we worship. We never want to cast out good doctrine or good theology, but good theology doesn't save you. Only Christ saves you. The person of Christ saves us. This is why uh, for us here at 116 Bible Church, the criteria for you to come in and be a part of the family of God here is that you come to the person of Christ. And you're born again. Or you can come as a sinner in needing of grace and you'll hear the gospel, the true gospel preached here. You are welcome here. But coming in here and being cornered and being told that you have to follow a certain certain precepts and certain points uh, to be accepted in here would be absurd. We come to the person of Christ and are converted. I don't remember ever classifying myself as anything else than a born-again Christian when I first got saved. I was set on fire by God when I got converted, but I had no label yet. I hadn't found the label that I fit under quite yet, but I can tell you most certainly I was converted. I didn't have every every I dotted perfectly or every T crossed perfectly. I didn't have my theological views perfectly panned out yet. But I knew one thing. I had met the living God and I was converted. And that my sins were forgiven. And I was made right with God and I was given a new spirit. I knew that beyond a shadow of a doubt. That's why we must understand it is the simplicity of Christ himself that converts us. And I think we've lost that. I think we've rebelled against the simplicity that's in Christ. I don't think we're happy with that. I think what it is, we have to come up with something else to throw on top of it. Because I think that's a, I think it's a major problem. The major problem today in Christian circles isn't abortion, isn't Islam, isn't Mormonism. It's really a perversion of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's that we're ashamed of the gospel. We're embarrassed by the gospel. We don't trust in the gospel. You know, it's, 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 a, it's a known fact. The number one reason why people don't share their faith is not because that they're not skilled enough. It's not because they haven't been trained properly. Training's great. Skill's great. But the reason why people don't share their faith is because they don't trust in the gospel. They don't trust in the gospel's power to save someone. And that's why you see the dog and pony shows wherever you go in the churches today. Most of them. They're not happy with the simplicity that's found only in Christ. They've got to add to that. They've got to make it better. Or they're ashamed of the gospel. I want to give you three applications um, this morning uh, dealing with, with, with the gospel and the simplicity of the gospel for your lives. And three points. It's really application. Number one is that we must have a godly jealousy. We must develop within ourselves a godly, it's a godly jealousy. Number two, we must be careful of deception. Extremely careful of deception. And number three, we must trust in the simplicity of the gospel. Godly jealousy. In 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 2 of 2 Corinthians, Paul says, For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. I mean, these are some very strong, strong words. And there's a lot that stands behind these words. Um, the phrase, I am jealous, uh, in the Greek it means zelo, which means properly, I ardently love you. 
zealously love you. I'm full of tender attachment to you. The word was usual, usual among the Greeks to denote an ardent affection of any kind. It actually means to boil or to be fervent or fervent. In other words, that is with a very great or vehement zeal. You get some idea about Paul's love for the people of God and the church of Jesus Christ. I mean, that alone should make us just stop for a minute and stop going through the Bible and rest there and take a picture of that and say, where do I stand with that? In my love for the people of Christ, for the people of God, for the church. Am I one that constantly gossips about the church, slams the church, slanders the church? Or do I have an ardent, fervent, zealous, boiling love for the people of God? I would say I'm guilty of not at times. I would say for me personally, you know, it's always a struggle. One minute you're up, one minute you're down. You know, and, and it, can, it can be a challenge. Christian people can be a challenge. Church people can drive you nuts. They really can. And I'm not talking about, you know, necessarily just true believers. But in a general sense, just the, the whole idea of church people and their continual complaining and uh, causing problems, backbiting, gossiping, slandering, and just continual uh, ways can cause a person just to get fed up and lose their zeal and love for the other people. Paul says, for I betrothed, or another word, espoused you. The word used here actually means properly to adapt to, to fit, to join together, hence to join in wedlock, to marry. Here it means to marry to another. And the idea is that Paul had been the agent employed in forming a connection similar to the marriage connection between them and the Savior. And Paul says in, in verse 3, but I fear... He says, but I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness or beguiled you or bewitched you, you have wandered from the simplicity of the gospel. And you can see the simplicity of the gospel is some cheap grace with Paul. Here's this little thing he just spits out. Hopefully you'll confess it and you're saved. He's talking about betrothal. He's talking about bringing you to the king of kings, the creator of all things. He's brought you to God. And this is the reality. This is what he wants you to see. This is why it's so extremely important that it's more than just salvation for your soul. It's about the worship of God with our lives. It's so extremely important um, that Paul was really in pain. I mean, to say, I'm jealous with a godly jealousy. And I, and, and I, and I fear because I betrothed you to the Lord Jesus Christ. I brought you to him. I connected you to our Savior. And I didn't do it in vain. And it means more. It means more because you, you, you minimize the gospel when you start adding things to it. You're saying the gospel's not enough. Christ isn't enough. That you need to add something to that in order to make it better. It's blasphemy. And it's a sin against God. And it's a sin against grace. And it's, we need to be very careful that we're not operating in this manner. But at the, at the beginning, we need to have a godly, godly jealousy for the people of God. And we need to make sure that that jealousy is displayed in love and how we proclaim truth. And that ultimately is, you could say you love somebody and lie to them at the same time. And some people can think that you're being unloving 
when you're being the most loving to them at that time. For me to sit up here and tell you another gospel, it may hit you in a way that's palatable and tasty and you just love the way it feels, but it could be an awful lie that sends your soul to hell. And I could stand up here today and preach the righteous truth of who Christ is and the gospel and you get an understanding of it, but you're, you're mad as a hornet because it's confronted your sin that you so dearly love. But because I love you enough to tell you the truth, I'm going to preach the true gospel in hopes that you will hear it and come to the redeeming power of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, knowing full well it is the only way to be made right with God. Point two is deception. Deception. And I believe that there are people who actually like to be deceived. There are people out there who actually love to be deceived. And it's why you see a lot of these these, um, health and wealth churches out there, word faith stuff, and people just, they just love it. You know, they don't want the truth of the gospel. They love to be enticed and enamored and and, and brought into this false form of, of Christianity that's not real. I mean, you can say, hey, are you a Christian? They're going to say, yeah, I'm a Christian. Well, they are technically to that system, but it's not a biblical Christian. That's not a biblical Christian that we see in Scripture. They're converted to a system, but it's certainly not biblical Christianity. And this is where the deception comes in. Paul was serious, and the most serious crime we can commit is to pervert the truth of the gospel. We've got to remember this. For he says, For he who comes preaching another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. See, this is the fear that I have, is that I'm going to preach a bunch of lies to you, and you're going to put up with it. You've gotten so used to seeing with the lights off that you've gotten used to it. You got used to seeing in the dark. And this is Paul's fear is that they're going to get used to straying away from the gospel. That they will put up with it. That someone's preaching another Jesus and they're okay with it. How often do we see that today? People all over the place preaching another Jesus. And everyone's fine. Well, you know, it's okay. You know, he is Jesus, you know. Well, he's, it's, it's not the Jesus that we worship from Scripture. It's of the Muslim faith, okay? That's not the same one. Well, what about the Jesus of Mormonism? False. It's not the same one. It's not Christian. You know, we have to learn to understand that everybody that comes preaching Christ may not be preaching the true Christ. It may not be of Christ. This is why it's so extremely important that we understand these things, otherwise we will be deceived. A deceived person doesn't know they're deceived. That's why they call it deception, right? That's the whole point. But the Bible says in Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart. Above anything else, guard your hearts. So this can be a preventative so you don't fall into deception. Above all else, how do we guard our hearts? Through the studying of God's word and through prayer and being in fellowship and affirmed with other true believers. Because you know what? If I'm in error, please tell me. I'm not going to throw a fit, take my ball, and go home. If you've got something that I've done wrong, or I'm in error, or you know, there's something I'm saying that wasn't right, tell me about it. Talk to me about it. You see, what happens is, in a church family, once you commit to a local church, you literally become like a family. 
And over a period of time, you can talk to each other about these things without the other person getting offended and going to the church across the street, right? You develop a relationship that's durable. And we were talking about that this morning in, in, our, in the Bible study. We we're talking about the durability of long-lasting relationships that are cultivated through the church. And over a period of time, even when we have different personalities and different ways that we do things, and many of us have faults and, 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 and things that we do there, you know, are what they are. But as a family, we don't boot each other out. We don't condemn each other. We encourage one another. We help each other out. And that's why it's extremely important to be a part of a local church. Even if it's not the best one in the world, okay? It's great to be a part of the family of God. Paul said in Galatians 3.1, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. But even we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than, than what we have preached, let him be accursed. And this is really a regurgitation. Second Corinthians is really dealing with the same subject that the most dangerous, dangerous people living are those who preach a false gospel, especially, and then they bring it into the church. And this is what was happening in Paul's time in Second Corinthians. They were, they were trying to dismantle Paul and bring in false teachings. And this is usually what they do uh, even today. Just this, this is a, a, a living book. The Bible um, is just as relevant today as it was back then. People try to come into the church. What do they do? They try to um, attack the authority of the of the elders, attack the leadership, try to minimize it. And then they only do that because they have an agenda. They try to bring something else in. So they can attack the leadership, dismantle the leadership, prove them to be, you know, derelict in their duties. Then they can sneak in with their doctrines and start peddling false doctrines. And they can completely spoil the church. And that's why we have to be Extra have extra care and extra caution and be extremely watchful for those who come into the church for that very reason. And let me tell you, there are those who come into the church for that very reason. We put up with much today. And I believe we have, as a church, I'm not saying this church, a church universal, the Christian church, especially in our country, has really rebelled against the simplicity that's in the gospel. We really rebel against the very wisdom of God. Listen to what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians one twenty one. Turn your Bibles, if you would, please. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians one twenty one. One of my favorite verses, by the way. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Now let's go down to 1 Corinthians one twenty-three. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. And then 24, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. See, to the world around us, it's foolishness. To the Jews, it was a stumbling block. To the world, to the Greeks, it was foolishness. To a perishing world, the simple gospel of Christ saving sinners is utterly foolish. But it's the wisdom of God. 
to those who are being saved. That's us. And we shouldn't neglect that. We shouldn't rebel against that. We should be happy about that because ultimately that's going to bleed into everything you do. We can hear the gospel. Well, that was a great sermon today. Wonderful. I get it. Blah, blah, blah. Go back outside and back on with your life and nothing ever changes. But if we understand um, that it's, it's, the, it's the wisdom of God and that, yeah, the world thinks it's foolish, but to us, it's the wisdom of God because it's the very wisdom that saved us. And it's the very power that you live on throughout your entire day. And when you screw up or when you sin or when you fall, you have an advocate. You understand that? I mean, do you understand how terrible it would be if we had to add to the gospel for your life and for mine eternally? Do you realize if I had to keep the law and um, trust in Christ and keep the law to be saved? You know how detrimental that would be to my life? And to my family. Do you realize what kind of person I would become as a pastor if I believe that? Rogue. Be a bully pulpit, right? Because it'll all be about law keeping and all this added to the gospel. I've been to churches before where they abuse people with, with, with certain um, pet um, laws that they've created and they try to impose them on the congregation and it does damage because it's not the gospel. It's like the gospel plus this. And it does extreme damage. We have to understand that it's the wisdom of God that saved us from ourselves, saved us from our sin, and saved us from the wrath of God. And it's that power today, simplicity of the gospel, that enables you to live a godly life and to bear much fruit for Christ. So think, think about that. The love and the joy, the perseverance, the patience under suffering. So you can't do that with a life that has no meaning to your pain or to your life or to your purpose of why you exist. There has to be, there has to be meaning attached to what we do. And this is why people go insane. This is why many people even take their lives because they, they, they fall into despair. And they're like, there's no, there's no purpose for this. There's no, there's no meaning attached to this. Why go on? You know, but for a believer, for a Christian, which we will go through those through those dark nights of the soul, trust me, we'll struggle with our fallen nature. We'll have mental health issues, okay? But there's meaning to that. There's a reason for that. It's not wasted. It's not pointless. It's not meaningless because there's meaning to your life and your suffering. And the things that you go through. If you realize that and say, wow, you know, um, I feel like utter death today. I can't get out of bed. My anxiety is killing me. I can hardly do anything. And you start pulling it. You start shaming yourself inside of your head. Start condemning yourself. But if you just stop for just a moment and realize that God has ordained that for his glory. That there's meaning in that. There's meaning in your suffering for his glory. It's there for a purpose. So when you're suffering, I know it doesn't necessarily make your pain go away, but when pain has a purpose and meaning, you can endure it because there's a reason for it. And it is to sanctify you, sanctify you, and to mold you and shape you more into the image of Christ. But also, it prepares you for ministry as well. 
Because a person who has been slugged and beat and broken and shattered is probably one of your best counselors to other people. Because they've tasted it. They've lived it. Now, I'm not saying you can't be a good counselor. And I'm not saying you have to go through all the problems to be a good counselor. I'm not saying that. You need to have the heart of Christ. But I know people who have been devastated by things. And they've used that to reach out to other people. Very significantly and very powerfully. I know one of the greatest ways to be able to help um, minimize your suffering. Read about someone else who is suffering from the same thing. Read about others who had the same struggles. And you don't feel so alone, right? There's other people who have dealt with these things and struggled with these things. And there's meaning for those things. It's the simplicity of the gospel of Christ. It's the wisdom of God that's going to nourish your soul through these times. Not just in the dark times. Not just in the times of disease. Not just times you're sick or out of money. Okay? But it'll be the times that push you through to do things that you would never normally do on your own. You reach out to somebody with the gospel. You rescue a child from being murdered in an abortion mill. You do something beyond what you would normally do. You write that book that you never thought you would write. You do that what you thought you would never do. You do that. It's like, where'd that come from? Where'd that energy come from? It come from God. God ordained you to pick up that pen and do that. <clears throat> I would say to you this morning, be encouraged. Be encouraged because the Lord is working through you and using you for his glory. Don't rebel against that, but be subject to that. Give up. Just give up. Don't fight against it. Just give up. Surrender to Christ and let him use you the way he wants to use you. It may not feel the best. It may not look the best. It may hurt, but it's his route that he's taking. To bring out of you some of those beautiful things that people can create. Trust me. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 4, see to it that no one misleads you. <clears throat> and then in Matthew 7, 22, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your names, and done many great wonders in your name? And Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. Why did he say depart from me, I never knew you? Never, ever like, I mean, I'm sure you guys know the answer. But it's because they were coming to Christ with credit. They wanted credit for what they did in order to come in to the Holy of Holies, to come into heaven. They said, well, did we not do this? Did we not do this? Did we not do this? They're trying to establish their own righteousness to get into heaven. Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. You deny the simplicity of the gospel. It's in me alone that you enter, and through me alone, and that's all. But didn't we do this? Didn't we do this? Lord, Lord. You can say, Lord, Lord, to your blue in the face. Ain't going to change reality. You're trying to get in with another gospel. And the last point is simplicity. The simplicity. But I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceive thee by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. In Romans 16, 19, it says, For your obedience has become known to all. Therefore, I'm glad on your behalf, but I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. What the point is he's trying to say here in this, both of these verses is that we got to be like, not childish, but be have a humble like, to be like a child in the way that we view the gospel. Have that childlike innocence in the simplicity of the gospel. 
Take it for what it is. Believe upon the name of the Lord. Trust in Christ. Have that childlike innocence when you come to Christ. Be simple concerning evil. The same idea is framed around this verse in, in how we're to, to come to Christ. Come as children. You know, children, if you, if you have them, which I have seven of them, I know that um, they hang on your every word. You know what I mean? They're excited about everything. Hey, you want to go, you know, build a cardboard kite? Yeah! You know, they want to do it. You want to go make Kool-Aid? Yeah! I mean, they're excited about everything. And this is the really the, the, the reality is when we, we hear the gospel, we're, yeah! You know, that's what, that's what our Father in Heaven wants us to be. He wants us to rejoice. Yeah, I believe you, God. I trust what you're saying. You know, I'm not going to rebel against that and think I have something better to offer. But being in agreement with God says and being joyful about that. We preach the simple gospel, but it's not an easy gospel because Christ says, I'm going to finish this verse. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up the cross and follow me. Now he doesn't become a Christian because he denies himself or he takes up his cross, but because he is a Christian, a true Christian, because he's truly identified with Christ and he is born again, as Romans 6 says, that he's been buried with Christ and he's raised again to the newness of life, then this new man will come after Christ. This new man will deny himself. This new man will take up his cross. This new man will follow Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together this morning. I pray, Father, you were glorified. I pray that you were worshipped. I pray the congregation <clears throat> was, was loved. I pray, Father, that they were able to receive uh, the word of God, uh, that it wasn't preached in vain. Lord, that you strengthen your church, you enable them now, Lord God, uh, to feed upon your word, the simplicity that's in Christ, Lord. I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen, and so be it.